This is episode 19 with Lin Chen, co-founder and COO at Layer CI. Welcome to Asian Tech Leaders. My name is Justin Peng, and each week we share insights from Asian tech leaders to help inspire and guide you to reach your full potential. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get started. Lin Chen is a co-founder and COO at Layer CI, a Y Combinator-backed platform that helps developers review and publish code faster and better. Prior to Layer CI, Lin was a co-founder and CEO of a food tech company, Candy Cutlery. In this episode, I chat with Lin about her passion for powerlifting, what her experience as an entrepreneur taught her about mental health, and why finding a co-founder is like dating. Hope you enjoy the episode, and let's get started. Hey, Lin, welcome to Asian Tech Leaders Podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really excited to have you here. Um, and you know, in doing research for our conversation, uh, one of the things that uh, struck me that I want to start with is your hobby, powerlifting. So <laughs> this not only is um, you know your personal hobby, but it's it's made it to your LinkedIn page too. So <laughs> um, would love to hear how how did you get into powerlifting, and how often have you been doing it these days? Yeah, thanks for asking. Yes, it is on my LinkedIn, can confirm, probably on my Twitter too. I'm really proud of it because I think it helps me stand out, uh, not only in the Asian community, but also as a woman. I think it's a little bit of a rare thing and I actually, actually absolutely love to do it. I've been doing it for six years now and it was just something I picked up on the side because I was pretty much bad at every other sport, any sort of team sport. I, I <laughs> so swear. Yes, this is my niche. It took a couple tries, but this is the thing that I really love. And how often are you lifting? And you know what uh, what type of structure do you have to your workouts in your routine, if any? Yeah, um, it's pretty much what's called progressive overload, where um, you know I do a combination of the big three in powerlifting. So that's uh, deadlifting, squats, uh, as well as bench. And then try to you know add more weights over time as well as some other exercises to supplement it um and prior to covid it was a pretty regular activity to me um i i was doing it about three to five times a week and now uh you know covid hit and then uh the gyms opened up again so i went for three weeks and then it closed again so i have to figure out another way to do this but yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you haven't gone to buying hundreds of pounds of weights and just leaving it in your house. <laughs> it's in my Amazon cart, so <laughs> yeah, probably I'm, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's neat. And it, you know, um, you know, as somebody who uh, loves sport as well, and you know, my sport is more like running. Um, nice. I have seen how, especially the mental aspect of being very committed to one sport can translate mm -hmm. into work. So curious to know, you know, what, if any, mental lessons or habits have you taken from, let's say, your six years as a powerlifter into uh, what you're doing right now as a, uh, you know, entrepreneur? Wow, that's a great question. Um, yes, I definitely agree with that, that, you know, your commitment to sports or anything that requires a level of persistence, you know, whether that's music or some other hobby, it really affects the way you work for sure. Um, at least for me, on in my experience, um, it definitely makes me more excited about the journey rather than the goals I hit. Because the progress that you see yourself making is like very evident. And in entrepreneurship, it's 
for me a long game for sure as well and I want it to be and so I want to be able to you know hustle hard but also you know celebrate the little wins uh, here and there and so that's that's something I really love and have learned. Mm, that's great. We'll get into what you're doing today at Lear CI, but it'd be great maybe if you could just start with, you know, your upbringing. If you could share a little bit more about where you're from and, and kind of what your upbringing looked like, that would be uh, great. Sure, sounds good. So I am a Canadian, uh, but I was born in China. Chinese myself. Um, and I was born in Jiangsu Nantong, which is, I believe, a couple uh, kilometers away from Shanghai. Um, and there I grew up with two families on my mom's side, on my dad's side. Um, on my mom's side, there were military uh, people, um, uh, police officers, stuff like that. That was stuff that my mom's family did and then on the other side my dad's family was a group of farmers and I would say like somewhat entrepreneurs um, I guess they went from farming to more entrepreneurial stuff but I think farming itself is already entrepreneurial um, so those are the two families I would uh, run back and forth from for about five years and then uh, when I was five years old I immigrated to Canada with my mom and dad and I've been in Canada ever since and yeah that's my my upbringing. Yeah. So, do you still have quite vivid memories of you, your earlier years in China? Yeah, I do think so. Um, I've only recently been back to China. Um, I've only gone, you know, twice in the past couple of years, but it, it was really important of a memory to me, just because I noticed how disciplined my family is at whatever they were doing, mm. and I, I think in an Asian household, like there are two things that seem to be a pattern that really matters and that's the same for my family which is you know having a family first mentality uh, and also having of course an education first mentality. Hmm. So what did kind of your days as a youth look like? How academic versus non-academic was it? <laughs> I could start from my time in China. I was enrolled in a elementary school where my dad per, you know persistently told the principal you know, let my kid come in when she's, you know, three and a half. She really, she's really smart. Like, I, I promise you, she, she learns really fast. So she, uh, my dad pitched me to the principal and they're like, okay, fine, we'll let her in. And, and then I- like a couple of years earlier than what most of the kids, the age that most of the kids started. Right, usually they would start yeah. at five and then my dad yeah. would be start three and a half. <laughs> and I totally did not live up to the expectation, I guess. Uh, I think I was good at memorizing things at the time and, you know, it did work, but I was a disaster. I was like the least proper Asian kid you could find, like <laughs> um, specifically something that's a vivid memory for me is uh, we would go on walks uh, during lunchtime. The teacher would take us on walks and we, you know, look at nature, look at the trees, look at the school. Um, and one time there was blue paint blue paint on uh, lockers that they were painting. And the teacher said, everybody, please do not touch the paint. Uh, I repeat, please do not touch the paint. I heard her, but I didn't listen to her. And, you know, everybody else was, you know, in line doing their thing. And then you see me in the corner, uh, putting my hands all over the paint. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was me as a kid. 
I feel like that's still me today. Everybody will be yeah, doing something yeah, yeah. else, following the herd, and then I'd just be doing something random on the side. And I got scolded so hard, I cried that day, and I had to go home early because my teacher just didn't, didn't want to see me. <laughs> <laughs> so you were going rogue from, from the age of three and a half at the very least. So this is in your DNA. <laughs> And I guess like, you know, even when you were in Canada and like um, going through elementary school and high school, did you feel like you were more focused on like, you know, the typical Asian experience, which is very academic, almost checkboxing through mm -hmm. one's academic life? Was it very much like in that camp? Or do you feel like you had a, a good balance between academics and, and things outside of school? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, good question. Um, I would say I started off okay, and I started off academic. And then when I came to Canada, um, suddenly something changed. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to be myself. I'm going to put in, um, uh, you know, enough effort to do something. But uh, I want to learn everything else outside of school. And that was kind of the way I wanted to live. And I thought about that a lot when I was a kid. And obviously, to my parents' dismay, that means I wasn't the, you know, number one student in class. I wasn't the number 10 student in class. Sometimes I was last. And so I became not very academic for a while, um, but just like kind of average or below average. Uh, but everything else I love to do outside of school was really, really core to who I am. So, you know, I love to dance. I love to draw, like all these things. Um, were really important to me back then and still important to me now. That's great. And I mean, even before going into university, did you have a, a sense of what you wanted to do with your life and career at the time? Or do you feel like you're more so kind of going with the flow and following your curiosity? Mm -hmm. So I think it was a mix of both. So I, as I mentioned with sports, I tried pretty much 10 different sports before I landed on powerlifting. And you know, that was kind of my mentality. I'm going to fail a couple of times at something, but at least I know uh, what it feels like because I've tried something, right? And so that was really important to me. Uh, and I kind of approached that in the same way about choosing university uh, courses and whatnot. Uh, at first, actually, in ninth grade, I really wanted to be a nurse because my thesis was I want to help people for the rest of my life. Um, whatever that may look like. And, you know, I'm not bad at biology. Um, I really like talking to people. So maybe nursing is for me. But my parents are like, why don't you become a doctor? I'm like, I'm not smart enough to become a doctor. So um, I said, you know what, I'm going to be a nurse. And I spent a lot of time, you know, talking to nurses. And, you know, for the next four years, I was really, really fixated on this one goal. And then um, my plans are all ruined in uh, grade 12. And the reason why was because uh, I basically went to a entrepreneurship boot camp called Y2. And uh, I was just there to support my friend uh, who was running the conference. I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll go to support you. And they're like, why don't you compete? And I said, fine, okay. Um, and then I did it. I loved it. The energy was exhilarating. And I wanted that feeling again and again. So um, I immediately wanted to flip the switch on science. Uh, and I decided I wanted to go into business. Um, and I wanted to go to Queen's University because a lot of the entrepreneurs there um, are people I admired. For example, Leon Musk went there. Michelle Ramel went there. 
um, et cetera. Um, but uh, commerce was just too expensive for me. So I decided on economics. And you also studied uh, computer science as a, um, like a minor, or did you take some classes on the side? I uh, just took some classes on the side. Yeah. Very neat. And it's amazing, though, like how you mentioned that serendipitous event at Y2, right? Like, mm -hmm. do you ever think back on like, what if I didn't go to this event or <laughs> didn't meet this friend? And who knows what your your path could have been? Right. Um, yeah, I, I think it's super scary that I may have never found what I really like to do for the rest of my life. But I think looking back, there are patterns. My parents um, are actually entrepreneurs and still are entrepreneurs. Um, and I've grown up in that environment. And when I was younger, I loved to, you know, try out new hobbies and uh, sell things and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And I just didn't realize that that was called entrepreneurship. Right. right. So I didn't realize that was even a career because there's no visibility or not enough visibility on this being an actual viable option for students. Mm. So in university, did you know you wanted to start your own business and company at some point, or were you just trying to gather the skills and then figure out, figure it out and maybe even take more of a traditional corporate job? Yeah, so, um, I mean, the reason why I went to IBM was to see, test the theory, can I work yeah. at a big company? <laughs> Uh, answer is no. It was awesome, but uh, I wanted to do absolutely everything. Um, yeah. And that's just not the way these roles at big companies are sometimes designed, uh, at least from my experience. Um, and so that theory was you know, proven that, okay, Lynn can't work at a corporate job. I don't think she'll be happy there. That's what I said to myself. Um, and then I decided to start a venture during the during um, my, my university days. So that was what's called candy cutlery, an edible utensil uh, startup. And uh, yeah, that's where I gathered the skills and I absolutely loved doing it. Um, and I think I developed a new theory for myself or hypothesis for myself that I want to build not only businesses, but businesses that help people and businesses that can scale. So those are the two things I realized mm. when I was and starting my first official venture. That's great. And tell, tell folks more about Candy Cutlery. Yeah. Um, so Candy Cutlery is a food tech startup um, that I started with two folks. Uh, and essentially, at the time, there was a huge uh, plastic waste movement where you know we wanted to make sure that there was as little plastic waste as possible. And I realized one of the big proponents of this is really um, you know, the fast food industry um, where, you know, you would just take a spoon or you would do whatever, but that's the only option you had. And that's why you would take it out of habit. So I wanted candy color to kind of change the habit, at least starting from the dessert industry. So it, it would be just an alternative that's biodegradable and would, you know, if you don't eat it, uh, then it would uh, biodegrade in the ground in less than 30 days. Uh, and if you did eat it, you know, it was just an extra candy or something that you could eat. And uh, that was just an interesting way to solve a really hard problem. Super cool. And um, what was it made of? Yeah, it's just, it's food. It's just uh, yeah. like a regular candy. It's great. It reminds me of um, some of the candies that I remember having growing up. Like the stick yeah. was made of candy to eat uh -huh. the sugar, like colored sugar uh, in the right. packet. And then you'd eat the, you'd eat the spoon afterwards as well. 
Yeah, yeah, I do remember something like that. <laughs> yeah, great. And then, so you spent about two, three years on candy cutlery, and then um, what decided you to move on from that? Was it um, something within the business or a, a bigger, different opportunity that you were chasing after? Yeah, I think, to be honest, um, it was two things. One was I was incredibly burnt out, you know, running a startup while doing school full time and then doing all these, you know, activities outside of school was just really, really tough to balance. And I experienced really, really deep burnout uh, super fast. So um, that was that was a harsh reality for me that I needed to tackle. I needed to take some time for my mental health. Um, and I remember at the time, my parents were like, ah, oh, you know what, you can just power through it. You know, we, I realized we don't really talk about mental health in our household. And that's pretty, I think for other um, friends who are Asian that I know, that seems to be a big trend too. So it was a really huge step for me to think about my mental health for the first time. And then the second thing is, as I mentioned, my hypothesis was I want to build something really scalable. And Candy Cutlery was a great start to learning entrepreneurship, but I knew that it wasn't going to be scalable and I wanted to do something that was scalable. Um, and I believe that that was in technology. That's the big opportunity that we have right now. Hmm. Good for you for recognizing, you know, your own well-being and taking a pause from that, right? Because I, I do feel like, especially when you're in it, um, it's almost like an ex escalation of commitment, right? The more you pour into it, the more you just want to keep going and powering through and right. trying to out outthink your feelings, um, right. but eventually it catches up, so. Did you end up taking taking a break after? Did you go straight into uh, your next venture? Yeah, um, I ended up taking a break and I decided, okay, um, so I can't work at a corporate job, but what about working at someone else's startup? Um, mm. you know, would that be something I wanna do long-term? Um, and so I ended up working in Tokyo um, as well as New York uh, at this company called Giftpack that did AI for gifting. And it was a great experience. Um, however, I realized I had that same pattern again that I did at IBM where I just wanted to do everything. I just <laughs> cared so much that it was as if I was, you know, a, a co-founder at the company. That's That was the feeling I had. I was so proud of it that um, I needed, you know, to spend all of my time thinking about it. And I realized, you know what, you know, I give up, you win, you know, I'm going to go start a tech company. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I did take a break. So I did travel and stuff and that was really fun. Um, but I just wanted to get back in the game as soon as possible. Wow. It's, it's amazing though, like when I hear you sharing this, that there was such a strong inner uh, desire and almost like, path of where you wanted to go and as much as you tried to experiment and try different things just to, to validate that you know career and life hypothesis of you it still kept you pointing in, in the same direction right um and i think a big proponent of that um so i went uh, to japan sponsored by this awesome fellowship called the cancer fellowship started by this Asian investor from Queen's University. Um, and he just invests in the top 15 Canadians that he finds every year that may have the potential to do something great. Um, and so uh, 
one of the big things or requirements with that was you had to go to a country where you didn't speak the language and make yourself uncomfortable uh, in Asia. Uh, and uh, you couldn't go, you know, with your friends or family or anything like that. So being alone for the first time in my life, going to a country where I didn't speak the language was incredibly important because, you know, that inner calling you mentioned kind of just came out right through that mm. experience and nobody else was there to tell me uh, that it should be what I do with my life. So that was really exciting. What's the name of the, uh, the fellowship that you mentioned? It's called the Cansbridge Fellowship. Yeah. Mm. And is there a specific output that they're expecting or is it really just to help you, um, number one, get, get more exposure to a different country and different culture, as well as to just like refine and develop what you want to do with your life? Like, was there a expected output from the fellowship or no? Yeah, I think they wanted to see an entrepreneurial mindset and mm. also, um, you know, someone with leadership um, potential who can help, you know, create a community for a resource for other Canadians to come. So um, the fellowship is actually 100% uh, fellow run. So, you know, I am volunteer, other people volunteer their time. So based on that, it's like very much, uh, I guess like the Asian household value of family first, but yeah. your, your family is, you know, the other Canadians that you can help uh, uplift. That's great. And after this experience in Japan, is that what led to Layer CI or was it a different transition? Yeah. Um, so, so for me, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that I really wanted and loved technology. Um, and that's, that's sort of the experience I had where I got to work at a tech company. I got to understand, you know, venture capital and what it's like to work at a company that I got invested in. And, um, you know, that's about the same time where I met Colin, um, who is my co-founder, and he is a brilliant software developer who faced the problem that Layer CI is trying to solve. Um, so, you know, um, I met him. He's in, also in Toronto. We ended up going for coffee, and we spent about three months together thinking about this before we decided, yes, this is the thing that we're going to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And can you share a little bit more about that experience? Like, what is it like to, um, first off, like find a future business partner? Mm -hmm. And is it really just something that you know organically will eventually lead to a more formal partnership, like being co-founders at a company? Um, or, you know, was it uh, was it a lot less structured and, and very, very natural? Like, how was that process for you and Colin? I'm curious to hear more about that. Yeah, um, so, you know, because I was meeting Colin for the first time, um, obviously, uh, I would say it's kind of like, you know, dating in a sense, right? But founder dating is sometimes what they call it. Yeah. Where, you know, you really have to take the time to really understand the other person's um, morals, their values, their TNA, and why they are the way they are. And so the three-month period where, you know, we were just kind of talking to each other with the intention of, okay, if we really like working with each other, then let's kind of go at this full speed. 
Um, and three months is not a lot of time. I would even give it six months or more if possible, um, you know, just to get to know someone. And so, you know, we both had the intention of, yes, we wanted to start a tech company. Yes, we wanted to build a big scalable company. Um, and now how do our skills align, right? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And I was really lucky that I spent so many years, you know, in a very operational role where, um, uh, I did have a lot of business experience, even at a young age. And on Colin's side, he had a lot of technical experience. So it was kind of a good fit there. Um, we had a similar way about how we wanted to build our company culture. And then I mentioned the founder dating side. We really did take the time to um, learn about each other's partners and our parents. Um, and I even asked you know, his girlfriend, oh, you know, what are your thoughts on Colin? Why, why are you dating Colin? Yeah, it's the diligence. And yeah. um, the answers are really inspiring. We're really inspiring. And I was like, you know what? I want to work with this person long term. I believe in this person. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Um, okay. And Layer CI, um, mm -hmm. share a little bit more about what it is. And you know, especially for non-technical folks like sure. me and, and some of our audience, what problem is it trying to solve and uh, what's the solution to that? Right, that's a good question. So um, I guess from a business standpoint, um, you know, on a non-technical side, um, let's let's think about it in the perspective of a developer. The, the way a developer currently works with their, you know, CI CD tooling, their DevOps tooling uh, is very much like you having to build an Ikea desk for yourself, and then set up your laptop, build your laptop, and then um, wait 30 minutes to send an email. Like, if that was your job, if your job was to send emails, you would have to take so many more steps mm -hmm. to, to be able to do that. And so that's not a problem that, you know, non-technicals currently face, but developers, uh, you know, on a technical perspective, when they're trying to code, there's so many extra things that they have to do to set up their workspace, to test their code, to collaborate with others. So it's a huge pain for them every single day. The frequency is huge. Um, and so, um, you know, that was the experience that my co-founder Colin had experienced at his previous company, where they had about 10 something developers working together. Uh, and if they were in the office, it was okay because, you know, if they needed to collaborate, you know, someone would walk up to their desk and say, hey, can I check your code for you? Something like that. But now with COVID and with remote work being such a huge part of everybody's lives, you know, how do you do that? You know, you can go on Skype, you can go on Zoom, you can take some screenshots, but it's really not the same experience of collaborating with someone in an office. So we make it easy for you to share your work instantly. So every code change that a developer makes, there's a URL link that anyone on the team could see and play around with uh, and see, you know, what happens. So, uh, that that makes you know the review process, the collaboration process, so much more seamless, uh, and that's what we're trying to solve. And on a higher level, uh, what we believe is, uh, you know, a good company has tech. Is a tech company, and uh, a good tech company has good tech, and good tech has good people working with powerful tools that help you know, make their code really reliable um, and a good customer experience. And that's ultimately what we power. Mm. 
super helpful. And the analogy was very helpful just for me to conceptualize it. Mm -hmm. um, curious to know too, you know, as a, um, as kind of the non-technical co-founder, how, how do you balance between, you know, knowing enough to um, run the business and operational side, mm -hmm. but also um, being comfortable with not knowing maybe the specific technical details and, you know, the pain that let's say a software developer goes through. How do you find that balance, especially as a non-technical uh, co-founder? Yeah, so I definitely struggle with this at first. Um, I almost left early on because I said, you know, I don't know if I can learn all of this niche uh, stuff, you know, in a short period mm -hmm. of time, right? And I didn't want to let Colin down. And um, what I realized when I flipped the switch um, is when I realized that I'm actually at an advantage when I'm not as technical. So I know a bit of front-end development, um, but that's about it. And that was perfect because not only could I level up myself and learn so much in a short period of time, um, but I also had this fresh, unbiased perspective about the problem, right? Um, so, you know, I'm more of a listener when I listen to Colin um, and when I listen to other developers. And what we did is in the short span of three months is we spoke to over a thousand developers from, you know, the Googles of the world down to, you know, one person companies and asked, you know, is this a problem basically? Um, and, you know, just took the time to listen to people and what they were doing. And we realized, yes, it is a problem. Mm. Great. So for, I guess um, jumping off that for any listeners who, you know, have the same vision for their career to maybe, you know, run their own tech company or be a, a founder or an entrepreneur, do you think um, they should just go deep in like the business skills that they accumulate in, let's say the next few years or um, complement that with learning more technical skills like coding, for example, or experience being a front end developer? Yeah, um, like everything, it depends, right? Um, for for me in my business, the more technical I am, the better it is for me to communicate with our mm. customers. Um, however, the foundational things that I know is very you know T shaped, right? Where um, I'm very good, or I, I've mastered some skills in. You know, understanding growth and understanding revenue and all that stuff, all the business stuff that are important to the business, right? Like, like there are two drivers. There's the, you know, the revenue and growth side, and there's the tech side. So Colin got the tech side covered. So I have to get the revenue part covered. Um, so I would say it really depends. Um, but you know, you should definitely try and you know master some very tangible skills in a particular uh, department, right? Whether it's sales, mm -hmm. whether it's marketing, whether it's, you know, product, right? Uh, and the reason why is that's how you'll find your co-founder, your future business partners, because they're looking for skills that complement them, right? Um, so whatever that skill you want to do for, for a long time is, is the one that you should try and level up on. Um, and yeah, I would say that that's my biggest piece of advice. Just level up yourself to be a good enough co-founder for others. Great. 
And um, the other big accomplishment, I know it's still relatively early in Layer CI's life, is um, <laughs> being accepted to YC. Huge deal, right? That's already uh, such a, a big accomplishment in Accolade. Share a little bit more about um, the experience. And obviously, you know, for the cohort you were in, it was all remote. Um, yeah. Share more about the experience and kind of uh, the YC magic that you're able to um, <laughs> be exposed to. I love that YC magic. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, thank you so much for saying that. We're really, really grateful for the opportunity to be a part of this past YC cohort, the first one that's fully remote. Um, and I definitely think that it, you know, rocket shipped our uh, growth trajectory. Um, and I think it's really because they have such a great track record. And, you know, uh, Silicon Valley feels so far away, but all of a sudden it feels so much closer when you're part of the YC network. Hmm. And yeah, I feel like the magic is really in the people that you meet um, for two reasons. One um, is that everybody's kind of in the same place as you. And I think I, I would spend so much time before trying to go out of my way to look for other founder friends and you know, try to get to know people. And that was a lot of work. And all of a sudden, YC brings you this network of awesome people from different backgrounds who are going through the same thing as you. Like, that's so powerful. That's so good for, you know, the support network to help each other out, not only in fundraising and whatnot, but also just as a friend. And then the second thing about why that's really powerful is, um, you know, you, you get to benchmark yourself. You get to you know, um, see other people succeed and say, wow, I, you know, I, I want to bring something to the table to say, you know, we accomplished something, right? I think having not only that support network, but a network to kind of inspire you consistently is really awesome as well. So those are the two things I, I think were really helpful from YC. That's great. And was it intimidating when you first um, started in the cohort? Um, you know, it can be almost <laughs> mythical to be part of a Y, y Combinator um, group. So I'm curious to know how how is that experience just in terms of um, having confidence in yourself yeah. and your team and your business going in, but also being like humble enough to be like, wow, like I have so much to learn. And right. um, it, how, how were you able to balance that? Yeah. Um, Definitely intimidated at first. Uh, as per usual in everything I do, I feel super intimidated as I first start something. Um, but then you get to know people and you realize, you know, everyone's just really friendly and very supportive and they feel the same way, you know? Yeah. Um, and um, I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned from YC, uh, from Michael Siegel, for example, is um, to basically bring value to every interaction you have, right? Mm -hmm. um, so YC brings value by giving us this network, by giving us investment, by giving us, you know, opportunities to t attend workshops. Um, so for me, you know, I have, had to give my 100%. I had to try my best to uh, teach others uh, or support them when I can um, and say something interesting, basically. And uh, it's, um, I think that really shifted my perspective even more to thinking, okay, um, for every interaction I have, not only in the YC community, but in my life, how can I make sure that I'm always 
um, you know, bringing value to someone else. And so mm -hmm. that's sort of the, the philosophy that I try to live by now, uh, thanks to this experience. And, you know, in order to do so consistently, to, to provide value, you have to level up, you have to keep learning. Yeah. Yeah, and like the, the whole growth mindset and continuing to grow and um, setting a high bar for yourself and obviously your team at, at Laracia is probably a, a big part of the culture. Um, on that though, you know, you did mention earlier mental health. How do you, how do you balance that, right? Like right. being within a relatively um, both fun, but to some degree it's high pressure running and um, scaling a business yeah. with taking care of yourself, um, especially in the middle of a pandemic. So I uh, would love to hear like, what, what are you doing right now to take care of your mental health and making sure that you can uh, sustain this level of uh, activity and input and value um, mm -hmm. that you're, you're currently pacing at right now? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. I'm so glad you asked that. I think the big problem I had when I was running Candy Cutlery is, um, you know, I was really young and the people I admired around me were all always saying, you know, you're gonna do the next big thing. You're gonna you're gonna do it so fast, um, um, and that put a lot of pressure on me. I um, not only had to prove myself to myself, but also to my friends, my family, um, and the people around me who were trying to believe in me. And so I think I put an extra pressure on myself to perform at 110 percent every single day, hmm. and that's just not realistic if you're thinking about it in the long term you know um i'm someone who wants to do things outside of work too and i think that with remote work it definitely helps uh, you know let that happen so my team uh, works on this awesome app called here.fm started by a yc founder as well and it's basically like the minecraft version of zoom you can build your own room, your workspace, yeah. you can pop into each other's rooms. Like uh, it makes work really, really fun. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of the, uh, I think a video game from the 90s or 2000s, The Sims, where everybody was just like a avatar living in a virtual world. So we, we might be getting there. <laughs> um, and just a couple more questions, you know, last, uh, next one is more about um, advice, right? So. Is there any advice that you would give to, let's say, somebody in high school or university still trying to figure out what do they want to be when they grow up? Yeah, um, so um, I think in terms of that, first of all, don't be so hard on yourself. We've got a lot of time. Um, so, you know, think about the long term mm. um, and think about, you know, maybe you won't get it done in a year. Maybe you won't be a billionaire in a year, but you know, it could happen 20 years, you never know. Um, and, um, uh, you know, definitely um, try to build a support network for yourself, first and foremost. Um, I was really fortunate to have had, you know, one or two mentors that believed in me early on, where even if I was failing, even if I was doing badly, they would say, Lynn, I believe in you because I know you'll get there. And you know, that was all that I needed to feel great and to power through. Um, and then thirdly, I guess, you know, as I mentioned back to um, 
having to think about the long term, I would think about both the short term and long term. Uh, one thing that I thought was bullshit when I was younger was learning about what's called smart goals. Mm, um, yeah. Uh, specific, like, wow. specific, measurable, attainable, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> realistic, and I forgot. Timely? <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Time bound or something like that. Time bound, um, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> So, so I remember hearing that in fourth grade. I was like, eye roll, eye roll. This is yeah. not interesting at all. Why do I care? And then now I'm like, so important. This is so important. This is what what helps me, you know, project what I'm going to do with my life and yeah. help me plan. So it's a really good tool, actually. So having those short-term goals where you're like, okay, in a year from now, what do I want to look like? What I What do I want to be? but not just for business, but as a whole, right? Mm. So, and then from uh, 10 years from now, even though it's really hard to predict, what do you think you might wanna be, right? What do you think you want your life to look like? Do you own a house? Um, are you, you know, running your own business? Like, are you traveling around the world? I think having those two goals has made it really easy for me to, you know, set goals for short-term and long-term. And I do this in particular through vision boarding. So it's really cheesy, but you know, having getting to see a couple pictures that represent what I want to be in a year and what I want to be in 10 years has been really helpful. Um, and actually, you know, things are coming true. I, I learned how to swim this year and I said I wanted to learn how to swim by next year. So yes. <laughs> okay. So do you actually have a picture on, on the uh, vision board of somebody swimming? Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm actually a big fan of vision boarding too. And when I first, nice. you know, I feel like we've all heard about it for a while. And at first, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. It's so like, New Agey Oprah, who I love, by the way. But then I ended up doing it. I and I do have it. It is like by my bedside, and it's so helpful too, especially when I find like I get caught up in the day to day noise or, mm -hmm. um, you know, focus on things that are probably too petty or too little. And when I look at them, like. You know, to your point, life is both short, but especially long. And um, the vision board helps like cast a, a really good um, future state of who do we want to be when we grow up? But in my opinion, not in a high pressure way, like if I don't make right. it, but it's better to set the sail than not to set the sail, right? So exactly. And and you know what? You can always change your mind, right? Exactly. Yeah, I, cha I change it all the time. And yeah. um, do you have, I'm curious, do you actually have people like not not necessarily like family members, but like famous people on your vision board because I do. Yeah, I do. <laughs> you do. Who's okay. yours? Who's yours? I want to hear yours. Well, story. I I I thought about that because I I had a few, and then the one that I have had that I've thought about changing in the last like year is Kanye. <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, the the thing I love about Kanye, he has so much confidence in himself, right? Almost too much, and that's <laughs> like for somebody who has imposter syndrome and who sometimes um, doesn't think enough about themselves. I'm like, I, I love the self-confidence that Kanye has, but um, some of the things that he said in the last year, I'm like, I don't know, maybe I should swap him out for somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Never yeah, is there anybody, yeah, exactly. Is there anybody on your board that you're willing to share? Yeah, so for my, what I wanna be in a year board, I put um, uh, the founder of Spanx, as mine, Sarah Blakely. Um, oh, she's awesome. She's, she's like, awesome. A, her story um, is amazing. She's such a great advocate as well for for entrepreneurs. Um, right, and and I just loved her 
struggle story. Like her, yeah. like how she started. It wasn't oh, a yeah. straight path. Um, and I absolutely loved how her parents, you know, thought about failure. And that really stood mm. out to me and is something I want to do for others in the future where, yeah, um, you know, you have to celebrate failure. And that's what they did at the dinner table, right? They would say, okay, if you don't have a failure story to tell today, I'm, you know, disappointed in you. That's that's what her dad would say, something mm. along the lines. And so, you know, I think the way she thought about life, like, I feel like it, it was probably so much more different than how we did, where I think <laughs> Aiden House was always like, where's your A, where's your A plus? But exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, her that that story stuck with me as well, and I, I think it's such a good reminder. And it, you know, to be frank, especially for those of us who come from a more traditional, stereotypical Asian household, where, to your point earlier, we don't really talk about feelings. My mom and dad never said, "Hey, how are you feeling today?" It, it was very, um, um, in some ways, reality and transactional based. Which is, I, I knew my parents loved me and cared about me, but right. we were more focused on doing stuff not reflecting right. on how we felt about doing the thing that we did. Yeah. And um, yeah, the, the, the question of, you know, how did you feel today is such a powerful question, right? Mm -hmm. And um, just creates a space to uh, be vulnerable and um, talk about, you know, things that didn't work out and also set oneself up for future growth. So such a great example. Maybe I'll swap Kanye out for Sarah Blakely. <laughs> <laughs> Um, cool. Thanks so much, Lynn. Uh, really appreciate the time today. Um, and thank you for sharing your inspirational story. I feel like so many of the listeners will get um, value out of this. So thumbs up to adding value today. Um, for those who want to follow you or, or kind of uh, see your latest thoughts on online, what's the best place to find you? Yeah, so I've started tweeting more. So you can find me at Lynn Cozy, L-Y-N. C-O-Z-Y, um, or um, follow Run Tests Faster, which is also on Twitter. That's uh, Layer CI. Awesome. Great. I will follow you right now. And um, thanks again. Enjoy the weekend. Appreciate the time. Awesome. You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. Please share this with your friends and follow us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. Looking forward to our next conversation. And until then, take care.